Well, hello everyone, and thank you for joining us today on If Walls Could Talk. Today I'm joined with Associate Editor of Walls and Ceilings, Hannah Baloli. Hannah and I are talking today with Michelle McIntyre, the Corporate Director of Occupational Health and Safety Services at Universal Engineering Services. Michelle has an array of vast knowledge on topics related to the industry. And what drew us to Michelle is that she is bringing awareness to issues in our industry that some of us in the industry may not even know to be an issue. And if walls could talk, I bet they'd be telling us to listen to what she has to say. So Michelle, it's an honor to be speaking with you today. And thank you so much for your time. Welcome. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. All right. Well, thank you, Jill. And thank you for introducing our guest. It's always nice to be able to sit down with fellow women in the construction industry. And today I am especially excited to dive into the topics that we have on our agenda. So Michelle, thanks again for joining us. Sure. Absolutely. So I want to begin by hearing just a little bit about you. Tell us about your role with Universal Engineering Services. Like what brought you to this career and what does a typical day in the workplace look like for you? Sure. So I've been in the industry for around 27 years. Um, I started off in New Jersey where I, perf- uh, I was in public health. I was a, worked in a health department as a health officer and d- did a variety of very interesting things associated with um, local health departments, restaurant inspections, uh, septic inspections, anything environmental well, radon testing, communicable disease, which really started my interest in, in the environment and public health field. Um, Then I moved a lot, um, Florida, California, back to Florida, where I um, worked for a number of fantastic companies, primarily as in a consulting role, um, consulting for clients with uh, significant environmental and public health issues. I started with Universal, well, it was called, we were with GFA. Uh, I started with GFA originally four years ago, and we've recently merged with Universal, along with a number of other firms. We, We are a very large engineering firm now. Um, My role here is as the Corporate Director of Occupational Health and Safety Services. So my job is to help grow the service line, um, which is industrial hygiene, health and safety, uh, building sciences uh, throughout the company. So I help support all of our branches. Right now we have about 36 branches across the company and over 2,000 employees. So we're trying to bring this service line, um, make it stronger throughout throughout all the branches, and, and I'm here to support that technically, and um, with sales to do whatever it takes to get the projects and help support the clients. I think a typical day for me, um, what I love most about my job is every day is different, uh, for sure different. Sometimes a hundred and eighty degrees different as to the day before. Um, we deal a lot with situations that nobody really wants to have. As you can imagine, um, nobody wants to have an OSHA violation. Nobody wants to have an employee sick or worse die on their job site. Uh, nobody wants to have you know, mold in their building or, or employees who are sick or complaining or whatever happens. Uh, COVID certainly has changed a lot of what we do. So we're really contacted you know, for, for times where, where people are stressed out, very uncomfortable. Um, so a lot of what I do is try to just help support that, whether it's preparing a proposal to, to go out to, for us to do work, um, selling a project or, or working with a client on an RFP, a large, a large role, 
uh, reviewing a report for our technical staff or, or writing our, our standard policies. It's pretty much whatever it takes to get you know, our staff where they need to be to, to support these roles and also to help the clients navigate um, everything that happens while you're dealing with these types of situations. As I said, no one wants us, no one wants to see us. Um, we're there and they know it's gonna cost a lot of money. There may be negative press. Um, so we try to do what we can to make it you know, as, as uh, least, uh, the, the least amount of pain as possible for, for our clients and, and help them to comply and, and get where they need to be. Yeah, and another thing that you do that helps within that same vein of educating people so they don't ever have to see you um, is speaking at uh, conferences. Like, for example, you just spoke at uh, the Florida Wall and Ceiling Association's annual executive conference where you covered the construction and healthcare, and you also covered the opioid use in the construction industry. So I want to talk to you a little bit about why you chose to cover those topics. Like you said, I know uh, you don't want this to be a bad interaction when they see you and people don't want to see you. Um, but for the construction in the healthcare, you were covering the healthcare regulations, the implications of construction related to healthcare, acquired infections and death, and the OSHA regulations and more. So would you say that your focus regarding the construction in healthcare is just to tell people what they shouldn't do so they don't do it? Well, for the construction healthcare um, service line, what drew me to that was really trying to prevent unnecessary deaths. So we do know that in you know, healthcare acquired infections, HAIs, they, they estimate 2 million patients per you know, a year get HAIs. Uh, obviously not all of them are, you know, a lot of them are related to the medical procedure or you know, the hospital itself. Um, 110,000 of those patients die every year of HAIs. And they estimate 5,000 of those deaths are due to construction-related activities in these facilities. So, you know, what draws me to that is seeing a need. Um, if we're having 5,000 people die a year due to work that we're doing as contractors in the facilities, a lot of that is just they need education. Um, they need to understand that what they do inside a hospital or a clinic or, or wherever there are sensitive populations does have a significant impact on the people in those spaces. Um, for example, if we're if it's an older building and we have somebody removing a wall, for example, and there's mold in the walls, or there's dust, or there's fibers, or or you know insect parts, or, or whatever you can imagine inside a wall cavity of an old building, if that spreads in through the you know the air conditioning system or spreads through a pathway where sensitive people can be impacted it could potentially make them sick or worse, kill them. And a lot of that just needs to be stopped. And there are ways that we could train our employees on how to work smarter and safer in these facilities to prevent the dust, the contaminated you know, dust from entering the areas where the, these, pop, these, um, these people are. So how do you go about uh, educating people on things such as like fall protection? And there are other safety issues that impact our industry as well. Like, so do you try to cover those all at once or do you usually have specific times where you're covering one topic of the safety issues? Sure. So there's, there's so many safety regulations um, required by OSHA, or if you're in a, a state where you have a state regulated plan, they may be more significant than, than OSHA regulations. And there's no way you could possibly cover all of the required training in one event. 
Um, nobody would, you know, you lose people after you know a short amount of time anyway. They tend to look at their phones or start daydreaming. Um, it's, it is hard to be entertaining enough or creative enough to keep attention for the amount of time that we would need everybody to pay attention. So I do like to spread it out. Um, you know, a lot of our training we do over, you know, it's, some of it's one hour, some it's four, some it's eight. Um, you know, those longer trainings are really hard because you, you lose people. It's, it's a long day to sit there to try to absorb that much. And we know that the students aren't absorbing that much, all the material in an eight hour day. So we do try to spread it out and try to stay relevant. Um, you know, fall protection has been around for a very long time and it is a required training, uh, certainly for this industry to have, you know, fall protection training to train on the, you know, fall protection equipment and your PPE. And so, you know, to do the same thing over and over again, people tend to get, I don't want to say bored, but there's, there's this attitude that they're, you know, yes, I've been in this training before. Yes, I know everything. So they, they tend to, you know, we find that the issues happen when the employees or the employers are not enforcing the regulations. They're not requiring their staff to, to do the training or to wear the fall, you know, the harnesses or to do what they need to do. So when we do have an incident, it, it is sad because a lot of it could have been prevented if they were properly trained, if they knew how to wear the harness properly, for example. So, you know, to your point, I do like to spread the training out. Um, nowadays, there's a lot of push to short bursts of training, trying to keep messages about 10 minutes where you can engage them for a short amount of time, introduce a topic, uh, whether it's through a toolbox talk or a short video or you know, just presenting the information before the start of the day on, on a job site, just to keep it fresh so that people stay, you know, so that is always on the begin, you know, always on top of mind that safety is paramount on, on the projects. And so would OSHA show up unannounced or would it be scheduled? And in either cases, how do you prepare your workers for an, an inspection? Sure, so OSHA could certainly show up unannounced. Um, they would certainly show up if there was an incident, uh, whether somebody uh, died or there was a, um, a reportable disease or you know, an incident that sparked them to come out immediately. They do have different levels of how they respond. Um, in certain areas, there's not a lot of OSHA inspectors. So some of the, the kickback that I get from some of our clients or people who should be clients, is that you know they've never received a violation or um, they've never had an injury or a death, so therefore they don't need to do certain things, which is which is not the way to be proactive and to prepare your plan. Um, you know, just because you've been lucky that your employees have not been injured or OSHA hasn't cited you or shown up on site doesn't mean that that's that's a good plan to have. Luck luck is not the plan. You need to prepare. Um, there's so much that has to be done. For, for a contractor as far as written programs, training records, um, whether you, if they're wearing respirators or N95 masks, you need medical evaluations. And if they're around noise, you need noise monitoring. It's the safety expectations for most of our contractors is significant. And many of them, certainly smaller ones, um, oftentimes do not have what they need to have. They, they haven't spent the time or the resources to get their program where it needs to be. And this does create problems because if OSHA should show up, um, you certainly don't have the time to go back and now catch up on the massive amount of material you need to have written or all of the training records that you need to demonstrate. 
So I try to get our clients just knowing that, you know, these things need to be in place, not just for, you know, OSHA, but having a good safety program, it changes your culture. Um, You want to have a company that acknowledges that safety is, you know, the most important thing. They want their workers not only to go home every day with all their fingers and toes, right? That's what we used to say. We want all of you to go home with your fingers and toes. But more than that, we want them to be working in an environment that doesn't create illness for them down the road. Um, it's more than just not falling off of a wall or a building and, you know, and dying. It's, you know, not being, uh, you know, making sure that the noise that you're exposed to doesn't destroy your hearing when you're 50. Make sure that you're protecting your lungs so that you're not exposed to silicon asbestos, whereas you're going to have lung damage and potentially die of mesothelioma or silicosis when you're older. So again, I think there's, there is that, that, uh, thought that a lot of people don't want to wear protection because they're they're saying, oh, I'm not sick or it's not going to impact me. Well, those workers may be 20 years old or 30 years old, and they may not see that impact until they're 50, 60, 70 years old, in which case it's way too late to do anything about it. And now they are very ill and may die prematurely due to those exposures. Wow. Well, this is really interesting. Uh, my dad's a contractor. So as you're saying all of these things, I'm like, oh man, does he know about this? Does he know about this? How can I, how can I protect him now? Um, so when there is an, in- an incident, Michelle, uh, what is the standard operating procedure? And do you recommend a certain person uh, talks first to the OSHA inspector? And if that person isn't available, then who, uh, what, what are they to do? Sure. Yes, absolutely. Each company should have a written plan for an event like that. Um, Usually it's the safety. um, Most companies have a safety manager or somebody assigned to the safety role. If not, sometimes it's a human resources function where they're responsible for it. Um, It should be something that everybody knows about um, because if an ocean inspector shows up, you want to make sure you're the right people know and can answer their questions appropriately and can show them on the site where they need to be. Um, I think it's very important that this is is trained in advance um, because you may have somebody willing to help the ocean inspector and showing them everything you have going on the construction site, but that's generally not the most desired action. You wanna make sure that you're focused on what the ocean inspector is actually asking for. So I just caution our clients to make sure that somebody is designated as that contact person. So if OSHA shows up or if you have a, law enforcement show up or the media shows up or somebody showing up where you need to, you know, make sure that person is attended to properly with the correct information, that there is a person assigned to be the spokesperson. Um, If that person is not on site, then generally the OSHA inspector does allow there to be some time for you to get that person to this job site. So they understand that, you know, they they can't always just walk on site and find the right person, that sometimes that company needs to get the person where they need to be so that they can answer the questions. But again, it's a very important thing because answering the questions wrong, uh, you know, could could have significant impact. Mm -hmm. So um, I want to jump tracks a little bit now um, and on the same vein of raising awareness, um, something that you recently got into covering uh, and talking about was opioid use in the construction industry. And we know that this is a Opioid use in uh, in general is a huge issue facing our country right now. And in 2019, nearly 50,000 people in the U.S. died from opioid-involved overdoses. Um, so, Michelle, talk to us a little bit about 
when you knew that this was something that you wanted to raise awareness to or how you even got into uh, discussing this topic? Sure. Um, so a couple of years ago, we started, you know, this topic started popping up a lot, whereas it was, you know, the keynote speakers at our large conferences for industrial hygiene and safety were all talking about opioid use. So it started to become a, a subject of, of conferences. Um, there was, you know, this has certainly been around longer than just the last couple of years, but the, you know, the industry that I'm, the, the industry that I look at, it, it's been the last couple of years where this has gotten significant traction and having more people talk about. It, it is a little outside the scope of a normal safety professional. You know, OSHA doesn't teach you about opioid use necessarily, and we don't learn it in, in class. Um, so it's something that is, you know, we have to respond to because it is so impactful of, you know, to our workers and the safety of our job site. Yeah, and can you speak at all on uh, like what opioids are and how they work or even if, uh, is there a specific thing that you think would draw our industry to them? So um, again, I'm not a medical doctor. So when I speak about this, it'll be at a very, you know, like a very broad level. Mm -hmm. um, I got involved because I think that your last question talked about this. The reason I wanted to talk about it is I try to bring to the clients new information. They rely on us to help them stay up to date with the latest regulations or anything new so that they can make sure that they're you know, moving where they need to be. And just seeing the, the impact and the discussions of this and what it means to the safety of the job site, I just wanted to bring attention because, again, there's a stigma around it. Um, a lot of people don't know how to talk about it. Certainly safety managers, we're very used to talking about fall protection and electrical safety and and, you know, lockout, tagout, and all of the typical, you know, trench safety stuff that we're used to dealing with. But this starts to dive into an area of people's personal life uh, that a lot of people tend to not want to talk about uh, addictions or, or health issues. Um, certainly how you approach it can be a human resources um, concern. So it does help to kind of navigate that with your human resources department. So we're not, you know, we're answering the question, asking the questions properly, but because it has an impact to our workers, um, it causes drowsiness and cognitive impairment and dizziness and depression. All of those things on a construction site can be significant. Um, contractors use heavy equipment. Uh, they are, you know, certainly for this industry, they're wor working on walls and buildings and they can't be drowsy and have impairment and dizzy. So we have to be able to train our staff to identify you know, what the symptoms may look like or be able to recognize if somebody has you know, an issue that we can then pull that person aside or make sure that, that, you know, the, that they are working, operating safely um, because we don't want anybody getting injured on the job site unnecessarily. And plus we, we don't want our workers to to be in a situation in their life where um, they are resorting to methods. Again, the opioid use and addiction is, is a significant problem for many people. And um, it, it's, a lot of it's a very personal thing. So you, you know, if we're trying to create a culture in our workplace where we care about our employees and we want everybody to, to be well and be healthy, this is certainly a big part of that. Yeah. And so I know that you said that opioid use sometimes causes depression. So is there a correlation of suicides within our industry? And if so, are there certain prevention techniques that you're uh, 
teaching people? Well, I'm not quite sure if there's the direct link to suicides. A lot of times the opioid uh, deaths due to overdose. Um, if you can imagine, uh, some of the issues are, again, I think you asked me about why our industry is drawn toward it. I wouldn't say they're necessarily draw, drawn towards it. Part of the problem we have with, with the reason why it's an issue is because the work that contractors do um, is generally very repetitive. It's hard work. It's bending, stretching, and they may have issues that are um, um, back strain is a big one, or um, they have... Um, ongoing pain that they deal with every day. They may not be in the position where they have a lot of sick time. They may not have a lot of health insurance depending on you know where they work. So they go to the doctor, certainly if you have back pain, um, you go to the doctor and you're prescribed uh, you know, a medicine and maybe you're prescribed an opioid and it relieves your pain. Um, when you go back for more, the doctor may not be able to give you more because they are regulated. So you may go to another doctor who gives you some, and then you may go to another doctor and it tends to lead people to doctor hopping to get more, um, you know, more medicine. And then it once, you know, that runs out, some of them resort to illegal, illegal ways to get it and they go to the street and they start to find pain relief through, you know, heroin and fentanyl and, and that type of thing. And a lot of times that leads to overdose and certainly improper use of, of the product. So Again, it's not like our industry is the only ones, um, but that type of manual labor does give give us more pain, which kind of pushes us to asking for the, the medicine in the first place. Yeah, that's so interesting because I know that an estimated four to six percent of people who misuse prescription opioids eventually transition to heroin. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's important to talk about that issue because we don't want that we don't want it at all. But that transition, especially, um, do you know if there's a growing rate of users uh, with opioid use in the construction industry, or it's just something that's been noticed and uh, there's not? We just want it to stop. Well, I think it's a little bit of uh, for a while it was definitely on the. Well, before COVID, it was definitely on the increase. And then there was um, government involvement to limit the number of prescriptions doctors could write. So it did start to bring, you know, highlight the issue. So there was, I guess, I don't want to say a correction, but there was more of um, an issue with doctors can't just keep handing out, uh, you know, uh, prescriptions for Oxy Oxycontin anymore. Um, there is limitation to that. Um, Go ahead. I'm sorry. I think I just lost track of your last question. <laughs> uh, no problem. Uh, we were just speaking on if you've noticed uh, a growing rate of users. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. But with COVID, they did talk about now how this has caused another increase, certainly through this last year. Certain populations have a, a surge of use after COVID, whether they were laid off and they are seeing more depression or, you know, they're not exactly sure of the pinpointing as to why that is. But we did see a, a surge with this last year due to COVID. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, well, Michelle, we're we're about to finish up here. Uh, but just why don't you tell us what you have coming up? Are you doing any uh, traveling for any events? Are you sticking close to home for now? Um, well, most of my uh, work now is virtual, which does help um, because I support so many branches. It helps me to kind of stay at one place. But I do travel to our various branches to help support, um, try to visit some of the larger construction sites. Uh, I don't know if I have a conference coming up. I do speak a lot, which I really do appreciate the opportunity to 
to speak. Um, I will be giving a health, a construction and healthcare virtual training. It's going to be a two-hour class on April 22nd. Um, that is going to be a virtual class because, again, I am pretty passionate about trying to get the word out to our contractors about you know using precautions and protections during their work practices. Michelle, before we let you go, I wanted to ask you, um, I see here you posted on LinkedIn recently that the Board of Global EHS issued a new badge to verify your certification. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Um, I hold a number of certifications that I've acquired over the years, and they they vary depending on what our, you know, indoor environment, microbial um, work. Um, the CIH isn't is a it's the board it's a board uh, credential for industrial hygiene. Um, it takes quite a bit to, to get it. Um, certainly, an awful exam, um, but it's years of <laughs> <laughs> it's years of uh, showing demonstrating um, in education and experience in what's, what's called industrial hygiene. Um, and if you're not familiar with that, essentially industrial hygienists are hazard scientists. And it's our job to recognize, anticipate and control hazards, whether they're uh, microbial hazards like mold or um, asbestos hazards or lead-based paint, or we have ergonomic issues or heat stress or, you know, depending, you know, anything related to a, a worker or a building, um, that's kind of what that certification is about. And it's one that I'm proud of. Uh, it took a very long time to get. Um, for, for my industry, it's the highest credential that I, that I can get. So I am, uh, you know, those of us who have it are very proud to, to hold that one. Well, it's definitely very impressive. And it's clear that you do an extensive amount of continuing education. And it's even better that you share that knowledge with the industry to help contractors across the nation to make sure that they are prepared with everything that they need to be prepared for. Um, but before we let you go, Michelle, can you tell us what's coming up? Like what's what's kind of, what's the silver lining? What What's happening out there that um, is been, that you see that's been a great thing, even, even through COVID or just anything positive in general? Sure, I think um, certainly speaking here in Florida, we've we've been open for for a long time through COVID, and the construction industry, especially, been has been deemed essential workers. And many of our clients have been working very diligently to try to stay compliant and to keep their construction sites and their workers safe during coronavirus, so that we can continue. So I think the silver lining is as we come out of this, um, there's been a lot of education and, and um, improvement in safety practices to, in response to COVID, in response to the overall wanting to continue to work and, and get back to work. Um, I'm very excited to be in my company now. We, we are growing very quickly and bringing on so many more employees. And um, I'm just excited to grow the service line and to bring you know, this um, preventative and education uh, service to as many clients as we can across the country. And if anybody has any questions for you, Michelle, what is the best way for them to get a hold of you? Um, sure. I think my email is, is best. It's um, mmcintyre at universalengineering.com. Oh, thank you so much. And is there, um, is there a website as well that they can reach you at or get more information? It's uh, universalengineering.com. 
Well, again, Michelle, we are so grateful for your time and we're grateful for all the education that you can, are sharing with contractors today. Uh, if anybody has any questions for us, please feel free to reach us at wconline.com. And while you are there, make sure you sign up for our free e-magazine, our digital editions, and check out all the great content we have on our website. Please stay safe and healthy. And we look forward to seeing you next time on the next edition of If Walls Could Talk. Thanks so much and have a great day.